0: Good morning. If you would like to go ahead and open in your Bibles to the book of Numbers. Book of Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible. We are going to spend a majority of our time there this morning, specifically in chapter 32. And as you turn there, I'd like to also say welcome. It's so good to see each and every one of you out tonight, or this morning, and expressly our visitors that we have with us. We're so glad to see you. We hope that you have felt welcomed. And it's just such an encouragement as we gather together for the purpose of worshiping our one and true God. And when we think of, of what all He has done, not only for us, we can look around in our own lives and see an abundance of things that the Lord has done for us, but we can also look back through the Scriptures and see what He has done throughout history. And that's what I want to do this morning. In Numbers chapter 32, we want to look at a, a historical account that was recorded for us um, between the between the time of leaving Egypt and and making their way and settling after their conquest of the Promised Land, we see a, a conversation that goes on between the tribes of Reuben and the tribe of Gad. And we also see their, the response that Moses gives them in this time. And that's what I want to take a, a moment to look at this morning. <clears throat> the first thing that I want to do is just to turn here and, and read in the first five verses uh, we're really going to see just lined out exactly what was going on in these two tribes' minds, what they, uh, what, where they were at uh, personally at that time. Uh, in chapter 32 and verse 1, we read, Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock, and when they saw the land of Jazar and the land of Gilead, that indeed that region was a place for livestock. "...the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazar, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elileh, Shabam, Nebo, and beyond. The country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Therefore they said, if we have found favor in your sight... Let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. Now this land that they're talking about to this day is still considered a land that is suitable for livestock. In fact, this land that's to the east of the Jordan, we, we see that even today sheep farmers and, and, and cattle farmers, they try to get their, their animals in this land because it's very abundant uh, for what is needed to be raising livestock. And we see that the two tribes here, they're looking around and they're saying, this is beneficial to us. Look, we have livestock. We have lots of livestock. And this land is so good, we want to stay right here. I know God has promised us this land and there's more to be done, but we are happy with what we have. And we want to sit down right here and and, and set up shop. And this idea, it it makes sense to us on, on a physical level. We look around and we say, okay, well, that is what suited them best. That met their strengths. Their strengths of raising livestock were facilitated in this good land. But we see later on in, chapter, or in verse 6 how Moses responds to this. And the title of our sermon this morning is found in chapter 6. And Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? He goes on in verse 7, Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol and they saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. And so the Lord's anger was aroused on that day, and He swore an oath saying, Surely... None of the men who came up from Egypt, from twenty years old and above, shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb, the son of uh, Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun. For they have wholly followed the Lord. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and He made them wander in the wilderness forty years, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And look... You have arisen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all these people. Now, when you read this, it's kind of a a fiery rebuke that we see from Moses. But in a sense, I think he's truly asking them, Have you thought out what you're saying? Have you really sat down and thought about this? Yes, this land looks good. This land, it meets your needs. But have you thought about your other brethren whenever you have thought about this land and how good it is for you? And he makes that statement there, shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? He's really saying to them, shall, they be at, shall you all be at ease while the rest of your brethren go off to fight? Have you thought about them? Was it, was it not with your brother's help that this land that you're talking about is even available. You know, they had been fighting up to this point, and they had not done the fighting on their own. They had all worked together to get to where they were. So we see that he, Moses, he viewed their request in, in, in kind of a negative light. He looked at it and said in, in verse 7, this is going to discourage your brethren. And. and Not only that, he compares them to the ten spies, their own fathers. He says, do you not remember that we went through this once before? We were at this point before. And we sent the spies in, your own fathers. We sent in, and they came back and said, I don't think we can do this. And they discouraged the children of Israel into going in. And do you not remember the consequences of that? The years that we spent in the wilderness, how all of them passed away he was directly making a, a comparison to them, and then going on in verse 14 saying, you are a brood of sinful men. You will increase God's anger against us, and in essence, you will destroy this people. So in verses 16, we see uh, an agreement. Verses 16 through 19, we say that the the children of the tribe of Reuben and Gad, they, they have come to an agreement with Moses. Then they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock, and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place, and our little ones will dwell in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of them... <clears throat> Excuse me. We will not re, uh, we will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has fallen to us on this eastern side of the Jordan. So what they're saying is okay. We see your point. Point taken. So here's what we will do. We will we will provide for our families, for our livestock. We will get that set up, and then we will go with you. We will do the work that, that God has called for us all to do. And, and we will be content with helping you all to get your inheritance, but we still request our inheritance be over here in this transjordan area. And Moses responds to that with an agreement, but also with a warning. In verses 20-23, through 23, Then Moses said to them, If you do this thing, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for war, and all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord, until He has driven out His enemies from before Him, And the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession there before the Lord. But if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sins will find you out. He says, the land that you desire, it it will be yours if you carry through with what you have said. If you stay true to your word, it will be yours. But if you don't keep up with your end of the bargain, if you don't keep your word, he says, you will not have sinned against me. You will not have sinned against the other ten tribes uh, of your people. You will have sinned against the Lord. And the, the point of saying that is found in verse 23, your sin will find you out. You know, if it was just a simple sin against Moses or uh, against Eleazar or the other children of their tribes, they could come up with all sorts of excuses. So many things that they could do to excuse why they couldn't go to war. But they're not going to keep anything back from God. Their sin against the Lord will have no excuse. They won't be able to hide that sin from him. And 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 so uh, we we see that that they have they have Discuss what they want to do. They have been brought to light what it is that, that they desire and, and how it can affect the congregation. And they have said, they have resolved to say, okay, we will do the Lord's will. Now, 1 Corinthians 10 11 tells us that what has happened to Israel is very important to us because we can learn from it. We can take example for it. In fact, it was recorded for the sole fact that we would be for our admonition. So, with this in mind, I would like to consider how this applies to us today. The first thing I want to note is that like Israel, we too are at war. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about this. We too are engaged in a spiritual combat. 2 Corinthians 10, and starting in verse 3, Paul is writing, "...for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh." For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We have to be aware of this. We have to be aware that a war is waging. And yes, the battle, as we sometimes sing the song, the battle belongs to the Lord. But the war is still going on, and we have to take up arms. We have to go into that battle. And we have to fight. As Ephesians 6 talks about, we have to fight our adversaries. Ephesians 6 and verses 10 through 18. You might recognize this as the the armor of God, to put on this whole armor of God. But in this, we learn who it is we fight. In verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. as we go through here, notice the action that is required. He says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. And stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. There's a lot of action going on there. He's not saying just saying these things are available to you. He's saying take what's available to you and use it. Put it to use. It does you no good setting back in a supply closet somewhere. Get this stuff out. Get it on. And be prepared to go to war. Be prepared to stand up. Because the fact is, the, the Lord's army, the church, she, she, is, she fights this battle. For The members therein serve in, in areas such as evangelism, such as edification and benevolence. And we have to make sure that we, as the church, that we are taking that battle to the enemy. One thing that I I think of in in this battle is the fact that there has been a lot done in the past. In fact, up till now, much has been done uh, in the ways of those who have stood for the truth. You know, I think of how many have come out of denominationalism. So many of us know someone who has come out from from this division and said, "This isn't right." As we talked about in class this morning, this this isn't what Jesus wanted. This isn't this divided nature that we have. He He desired unity. And so they have come out and said, we will, we will recognize that there is only one true God. And there is only one true way to please Him. But we also think of those who have stood firm against innovations that, that would have led to apostasy. When we think of instrumental music and, and, and sponsoring churches, we see we can go all the way back to, to in the first century uh, when, when people were saying one bishop... Can can rule one congregation. And let's not stop there. One bishop can rule several congregations. They can all be under the authority. And we can see how men were willing to, to even go to death to stand up and say, No, this is not what God has has asked for us to do. This is not how Jesus wanted the church that he established to be run. And because of men who are willing, men and women who are willing to stand up and to fight for the truth in the past. Today, we have the possibility to know the truth of God. And to know the Gospel of Jesus Christ, a Gospel that's not perverted, that's not changed. We have the ability to worship God in spirit and in truth. And we have the ability to enjoy the blessings that we enjoy to this very day. The blessings of the family that He has created. And sometimes when we think of that, it is so easy to kind of get complacent think there's so much that's been done in the past, so many things that people stood for that I, I don't have to worry about those things because they're not here anymore. But that's a dangerous idea to have because the fact is the war is still waging. The battle still rages right outside, even inside the doors of, this, of, of the congregation at times. And as 2 Corinthians 10 talked about, every thought must be brought Captive. Into Christ, we must bring every thought into sub uh, subjugation. And Ephesians six eleven, we must continue to stand up against the wiles of the devil. So that's why it is so important for us to ask ourselves this question: Shall our brethren go to war while we sit here? Are we by letting others do the work of the Lord's army just content to set back? Shall we just sit and enjoy the efforts that others have done, whether it be in the past or whether it's those who are laboring today, those who continue to fight to make it possible for us each to enjoy the blessings and fellowship and worship in the Lord. Now I submit to you this morning that if you are not active, if you are not actively involved in some phase of the Lord's work, that is exactly what you're doing. You're setting back as those around you are working and we might be asking ourselves, well, what's the, what's the effect of that? Is that really that big a deal? Are, are, are we not still getting the work done? Well, in Numbers 32, Moses said the effect was the fact that it discouraged our brethren. It discourages the brethren, those who oftentimes, because they don't have help, have to carry the burden alone. And, and not, if that weren't enough, what happens a lot of times when someone is carrying this burden all by themselves, they get burned out. They get burned out and they start to give up. They start to to be fatigued from the amount of stress that is on them. And, and they just turn away. Another thing that I think of is the fact that not only do we see discouragement, but we see a lack of involvement is sometimes just as bad, if not more detrimental, as active opposition. As actively fighting against. In Proverbs 18, uh, we, we see what this lack of involvement is is uh, related to it is used a word that we don't use very often anymore is being slothful in proverbs 18 and verse uh, excuse me i'm in psalms in proverbs 18 and verse 9 we see that that the the brother who is slothful it says is he is a a brother to the destroyer in verse 9 he who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who him to Him who is a great destroyer. Those who who are slothful, who are not actively engaging, it's kind of like this idea that either you're with Me or you're against Me. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 20, He says those exact words. Saying, He who is not with Me is against Me. He who does not gather with Me scatters abroad. If you are not actively helping in the work of building up, then you are actively helping in the work of tearing down. And we need to consider that. On the day of judgment, are we, how are we going to answer that question? Have you actively been helping in building up the church? Well, no. Well, then what were you doing? Well, I wasn't doing anything. Well, no, you were doing something. If you were not actively gathering, you were scattering. We kind of uh, maybe think of in the, in the Old West... When, when we have the Oregon Trail, now, a lot of uh, some of the younger folk, maybe when we hear Oregon Trail, you think of a video game. I know it's the first thing that comes to my mind. But, but the Oregon Trail was a time when people were trying to get to this greater land, there's more opportunity out west. And we're going through the wilderness to get there, and we see a lot of people taking everything they own and piling it up on a wagon, taking their families, and a lot of times they would get into a a big convoy, and they would take a horse or an ox, some sort of uh, beast that could pull this wagon, and they would head out west. But what happens when when tragedy strikes, when a catastrophe happens, and maybe that horse or that ox breaks a leg, or or maybe is attacked and shot by Indians? Something along the way happens that incapacitates the means to which that wagon was being pulled. Well, we see that people have very few options in this situation. They can, they can go on foot and leave everything behind, but more than likely they're not going to get very far. They're going to starve to death. They're going to run into trials and, and pass away. But we see that more than likely what they would have to do is they're going to have to get out and some of them are going to have to pull that wagon and some are going to have to push and they're going to have to work hard together to get that wagon to its destination. Now consider that while these people are all out pulling and pushing, you have one soul that's setting up on the wagon going, you know what guys, if if we just pulled and pushed a little bit harder, we'd get there quicker. Now this sun's really hot and we haven't had water in so long. I'm getting thirsty. I don't know about you all, you all look like you're sweating a lot, so I imagine you're probably getting pretty thirsty too. I say we try a little bit harder to get to the goal. What that person is doing, whether they know it or not, they might personally think that they are encouraging them, but what they are doing is hindering the progress. How much more progress could be made if everyone was pushing, if everyone was pulling? And so we ask ourselves, whenever whenever we have those who are, are, are content to not have an involvement with the work, what's the end result? What does that ultimately end with? And again, in Numbers 32, Moses says that we that the those who to the tribe of Gad and Reuben, they will have sinned against the Lord. Because the fact is, for what one does, or for what one doesn't do, for that matter, for the church, it affects Christ. And I don't think anyone knew this better than the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter nine, Paul really got a a, a huge wake up call. In Acts chapter nine and verses one through five, when Paul was on the road to Damascus. It says, Then Saul, still breathing the threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the, synagogue, uh, to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, that is, any who were Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground, and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Now, was he truly persecuting Jesus? Was he truly persecuting the Christ? No. He was attacking those who are of the way. Disciples of Christ. He was attacking men and women. Jesus wasn't even on the earth at this point. But what does Jesus say? No, no. You're not attacking them. You're not persecuting them. Why do you persecute me. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What well, we see is that at times we might, be, we might think, I'm not hurting anybody by, by not coming to services. I'm not hurting anybody by being content to sit back and let everyone else do the work. I'm not hurting anybody by not spreading the gospel to those around. There's several people that are doing that. But what Christ says is no. If you're not doing the work, you're hurting Me. You are hurting Me. And yes, in 1 Corinthians, we see yet again that when we sin against the brethren, we sin directly against Christ. In verse 12, we read, but when you you thus sin against the brethren, you wound their weak conscience and you sin against Christ. We need to be thinking about that. That the actions that we take not only affect us, not only affect the brothers and sisters around us who are struggling and working hard, but they directly affect Christ. And then we need to remember still Moses' words, be sure our sin will find us out. Be sure of that. It will come out in the growth of the congregation. Proper growth is possible, but only if all are doing their part. Ephesians 4, we've kind of leaned on this verse quite a bit here over the past several months. Ephesians 4 and verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body and for the edifying of itself in love. Now you might possibly be thinking, but... But I'm really not that big a part of the body. Yes, I understand that every part's needed, but I'm not that big a part. You might know, look around and say, I'm not a, a bicep, or maybe I'm not a quad. I can't do that heavy lifting. You know what? Maybe, maybe you're an elbow. You might think, well, what's an elbow do? And, and I tried to sit back and think this, this weekend of, uh, about the elbow. And, you know, I'm not the greatest... Example uh, of a a muscle builder, if you will. And so maybe it would be better if if Eric was up here. Maybe he's got some muscles. Maybe he's got some guns that he could show off. But you think of the muscles of the arm and how much work they can do. But think of that arm without the elbow. It just looked like this right here all day long. Walked around like this. And when I got hungry and I picked up that food, uh uh-oh, how can I get that food to my mouth? Maybe I can hold it up and drop it. Maybe I can get a little bit of nourishment that way. But am I really going to be able to nourish myself without the elbow? Is the body really going to be able to grow without every member doing what part they can do? Growth may occur. It might. In, in fact, it probably will. But the fact is, with inactive members, it'll be stunted. What would, that, what would we call that person with no elbow that walked around with this? We look at that person and say, well, that poor soul, they're handicapped. Would the church not be handicapped too if every part doesn't do its part? And the fact is, not only will we see this in the growth of the congregation, but when we think that our sins will be found out, that will come out on the day of judgment. And we will have to answer for our laziness. And Jesus talked about this. He, he warned us, told us to be prepared for, for, for judgment, especially in regards to laziness. In Matthew 25, He gives us the parable of the talents. you remember the parable of the talents? In, verses, in chapter 25, verse 24, it talks about after so many had been given, one man was given five talents. He was given much. Another man was given two. And then the uh, third man was just given a single talent. And we see in, in the chapter that the, the five-talent man came back and he said, Look, I turned your five talents into ten talents. I worked and I, and I was able to to double your your pro, uh, what you had given me. And the two-talent man said, look, I, I brought to you the um, the two talents and look, I've brought in you two more. I was able to work and to double it. But in verse 24, uh, we read, then he who had received the one talent and came and said, Lord, I know you to be a hard man reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed, and I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground, look, there you have what is yours. And when we really stop and think about this man, he said, look, I know that you expect something. I know you expect growth. You expect a return in your profits. But I was afraid... That, that I wouldn't be able to give you that return that the five-talent man gave you and that the two-talent man gave you. And so I'm simply just giving back to you what you gave to me. Now, at first, at first light, you might think, well, at least he didn't lose anything. At least he didn't lose the talent. At least he didn't come back and go, yeah, you know I got hungry when I wasn't doing anything, and so I, I spent that one talent on a Coke, and here's whatever half a talent would be. Here's that back. No, he didn't lose it. But still... How does the Lord respond to him in this case? But the Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money. You ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. He was saying, I understand if you can't go out to work and double it. But don't do anything with it. It might not be two talents that you're bringing me, but it's still more than one talent. If you were to go put it in the bank and bring interest with it, at least you still would have made a profit to me. It says, Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We need to consider this. When we think of the the punishment that the unprofitable servant had, maybe we're giving back to God exactly what He's given to us. And that doesn't sound like a bad thing. But what do we learn from the parable of the talents? He desires more. He doesn't care if it's just interest. He doesn't desire for you to be a five-talent man when you're a one-talent. He doesn't desire for you to even be a two-talent person when you're just a one-talent person. But He does desire a return. And we see the punishment for those who who are just going to sit back and hide that one talent and not use it in a way to to give back to the Lord. We see that that punishment is hell. That punishment is eternal separation from God. And when Reuben and, when, Glad, uh, Glad, when Reuben and Gad realized the effects of just sitting back while the rest of their brethren went to war, what did they do? They immediately made arrangements. They said, Okay, I get the picture, so we're going to go to war. We will put our minds and hearts to it, and we're coming to war. But notice Moses, at the same time, was patient. Moses could have said, No, we're going today. Today's when we're going to battle. Your family, your livestock, I don't know, tie them to a tree and then tell your kids to watch them. We're going into battle. That's not what Moses said. He said, go do what you have to do. He was patient. And we need to be the same way uh, with those who, who are setting back. Those who have become lax in their, in their contribution to the war that we are all facing. But we, every one of us must remember we are required to do our part we are the lord desires us to serve and not to just sit back while others work so i want to ask you this evening, or this morning i want to ask you are you in the army of christ are you in the army of christ and and if not are you or if you are are you actively engaged in in working in the service of that kingdom Are you? Step back and really think about that. Am I just kind of holding on to my talent? Or am I actually working to help my brethren as they go into go journey towards the promised land? Am I helping them as they cross the Jordan and they go to battle? Am I going to be there with them? Am I standing by their side? Or am I just going to sit back and let them do all the fighting? And if you're not, if you haven't yet taken up that battle, my question for you is why not? Why are you waiting? There is nothing but joy and happiness on the other side of that cross waiting for you. And, and as we talked about in class this morning, yes, sometimes that happiness doesn't always manifest itself in, a, in an outward way. That's why we call it joy. That's how that joy is always from, from deep within. should be filling us because we know that Christ has washed away our sins. Christ has taken all the terrible things that we have done and has cut them off. If you desire to have that, if you desire to have that forgiveness of your sins, there is only one step that you must take, and that is to come to Christ. It goes through believing the Word and hearing the Word. You have heard it today. It goes through confessing. Not that you have sin in your life, but confessing that you have sin in your life and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and He has the ability through His death to wash that sin away. Not just for those who have not yet been baptized. For those who have joined in the service. Are you still coming? Or have you sat down trans-Jordan? Have you sat down east of the Jordan and said, I'm content right here? I hope you will consider on these things as we stand and sing number 300.